Welcome to Women in Science, a podcast series where we interview some inspiring women who are breaking barriers in their fields and making remarkable contributions to research. We chat to them about the science they love and their unique journey as scientists. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short, and in this episode, we meet UQ's Professor Jenny Seddon, an accidental academic. Jenny started her career as a vet, but with a belief of making the most of life's opportunities, Jenny followed a path that led her to becoming a molecular geneticist. Welcome to another episode of our Women in Science podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Jenny Seddon. Welcome, Jenny. Hello. How are you? Good. So what we normally do when we start these podcasts is we take our inspirational women and ask them, how did you get here? What was your journey like? So could you give me a little bit of your scientific journey and and what your history is? Yeah. So I started out with an undergrad degree in veterinary science. My grandfather was a vet, and I think that was the inspiration to go in that direction. I worked in private practice for a little while, working in a a mixed practice, working with cattle and dogs and cats in a a rural area, Uh, and that was great fun. had the opportunity to travel and work at the same time, so I spent a number of years traveling uh, in Europe, spending some time working in the UK, and then came back uh, to Australia was a little bit bored, I guess, working in private practice and and was looking around for other things to do. And just by opportunity, ran into a professor of genetics who got chatting and I ended up doing a a one-year master's degree with him and then a PhD. And he was just fantastic. It seems when I went into genetics, it was just something where I never really felt that I had to learn. It just seemed to come naturally and I just couldn't understand why other people didn't understand it. So, okay, this is obviously what I should be doing. Uh, And after my PhD, I went back overseas. I did a postdoc in the UK. I worked with another fantastic uh, scientist and then went second postdoc over to Sweden. So sitting in the UK at the end of the first one, it was what should we do? Shall we stay for a little bit longer? Shall we go back to Australia? Shall we go somewhere else? Uh, and I was offered the, the job in Sweden and it was like, well, what should we do? And, and, you know, being a scientist, you make lists, pros and cons of everything. And everything came out evenly. So we went, yep, let's choose the adventurous option. I like it. Uh, I like and, it. <laughs> yeah, and, and headed off to Sweden, sitting on the plane on the way over, turned to my partner and said, hang on a minute, we don't speak Swedish. Do you think that's going to be a problem? Um, hadn't occurred to me till then. Also had the map out going, oh, look, it's the same latitude as uh, Anchorage. So, yeah, <laughs> perhaps not as well prepared as I could, but it was a fantastic experience. It's so great to live in a different culture and, and see things uh, in a different way. So that that was fantastic. And do you speak Swedish now? I did when I was living there. I don't, <laughs> I don't know so much, but, yeah, Fair it comes enough. back to me. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I learned a whole bundle of different things. So we would work in English. Uh, the, the lab had a lot of people from all around the world. But yeah, outside of work, then of, of course, you had to um, be able to speak Swedish. And then from the end of that postdoc, I was then offered a position at UQ teaching genetics to vet students. And so that sort of came full circle for me. And it seemed an obvious thing to do. And so I started here as a as a junior lecturer and worked my way up to where I am now as Associate Dean Research. It's an amazing career and and you make it sound like everything was just a little bit serendipitous. Talking to a geneticist, things fell in place. Do you feel like a successful career in science needs to be strategically planned or can you just follow your interests? 
yeah, I think there's different approaches. For me, absolutely, it's a it's almost a random thing that happens. So I just take opportunities as they come. I talked to a senior woman once and she was like, oh, okay, now this is where I want to be in five years and this is what I have to do this year and this is what I have to do today to reach my goals. And, and I just sat there and thought, I don't do any of that. I just do the things that I enjoy when they feel right. Collaborations with people who push me a little bit, but I enjoy working with. And just the whole idea that when an opportunity arises, then you have to be brave enough to take it and see where it lands. It doesn't always work out because we just talk about the things that actually work. I don't think you you do need to plan. I think it depends a little bit on your personality Mm. as well. Uh, and what opportunities come. Sometimes there aren't opportunities and you have to go looking for them. But when they do come along, then I think it's a matter of taking them and see where they lead you. And I think that's really one of the important messages that we want to get out, that there is no one correct path to be successful in this field. And hopefully across this series, people get to see the diversity of different paths people have taken. So one of the interesting things about your career that I think resonates with a lot of people is that you stayed with your master's supervisor for your PhD and that you had a really good mentorship experience and and that was a small lab. What do you think about the experiences of staying on in one location versus you've moved internationally a lot? What are the sort of pros and cons for women in their career? I think the it, it comes down to the people you work with. I think if you have a great PhD supervisor, it really sets you up for the way that you think about science and the way that you interact with your own students. Uh, you learn a lot about supervision just from your own experiences. I think, so I did the, the master's degree because I'd, I'd done a professional degree and so I needed, I didn't go down the traditional honours route. And so that was just really an introduction and, and I enjoyed working with that, that supervisor who was a fantastic mentor, very, in some ways, old school, but but just just a fantastic guy to to lead you and, and to make you think about science in a, in a very disciplined way. And, and also to have fun at the same time. Yeah, so not, not too serious. <laughs> um, so I think that's, that's good. And I think then I moved on and had a number of uh, different postdoc supervisors and each one taught me something else. I think, so I did my PhD at Southern Cross Uni and I did that because my partner had a job there at the time and, and so that's where I did my PhD. And it was, it's a small university, it's very different to the University of Queensland. And it, I think it actually gave you more opportunities in many ways in that you were in a small lab, you're a, you're, you're a big fish in a small pond. And so you've got to do all sorts of things that you wouldn't normally do. You get exposed to the higher levels of the university. Uh, you, you get to be more involved in the whole process of research uh, than, than you would, much more involved in, in determining your own research projects. So I think there was, there was a lot of benefits to doing that. I think it's important, obviously, to have networks. And so even if you're in a small place, one of the, the great things about it was that my supervisor joined with other supervisors in the southeast Queensland and, and we would all get together and share experiences. And you, so you got to know more people. So, yes, it's great to be in a small place, but to keep those, those networks as well. And so what would you recommend to people who don't feel that they're necessarily in such a supportive environment for whatever reason and that they don't necessarily get those networks built up for themselves? How does one go about, say, finding a job if you don't necessarily have that direct contact? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's some people who's, particularly students whose supervisors don't don't have those sorts of connections or don't 
share them as much as they might. And I think then there are there are still other opportunities going to professional societies and going to conferences, linking in with other people. And I guess these days in social media, then there are options to, to link up with other people, lab visits and, and so forth. So I think there, there's a responsibility on each of us to make our own connections. It's not They're not going to be handed to you. So sometimes there's just the opportunities that come and you have to go out there and make the most of it or to hunt them out yourself. I think, too, although we have supervisors and bosses in many ways, that we also have mentors. Uh, and I think it's going out there and, and getting advice from a range of people, not just relying on one person. Yeah, and I think that's a, a nice message that's coming through with your career story that, you know, yes, there's opportunities and yes, things can be serendipitous, but you also have to sort of make things happen and you also have to take those opportunities and decide to go to a country where you don't speak the language and you just discover where it is in terms of its climate. So, yeah, it's about taking those chances. So you've made this really interesting career transition from from vet to someone very high up in the administrative aspect of the university. How did you sort of make that jump, I would say? How did you find it was going for a promotion and putting yourself forward and and a lot of those things that women struggle with in terms of selling themselves? Yeah, I think the the move to administration, I think, is it's an interesting one and it's not something that I would have ever guessed I was going to do when I started out the lower levels of academia. I think I just, again, I had an opportunity. Someone said, hey, what about what about you take on this job? And uh, I really enjoyed it. And I thought, yeah, I want to do some more of that. Had an opportunity to be a, a deputy head of school and realised uh, how much yeah, I enjoyed it. And so I just wanted to keep on doing it. I think I find great pleasure in mentoring others and trying to help other people in their careers and career development and, and to help them with what I've learned along the way. I think that's that's something that I really enjoy. And so as I've moved along, I, I've just, again, just done the things that I've enjoyed. And, and administration is something that I like to do. And, and I like to be able to influence as well. So just to try and influence the direction of the way that research is going, uh, to be able to assist others along the way. And what do you recommend for women who, you know, are thinking of going for a promotion, say, or thinking of going for that next stage in their career and are fighting this imposter syndrome or fighting this problem of, oh, I just don't think I'm good enough to go for this yet? Yeah, look, I I see that a lot. I I see it in myself all the time. I'm not a naturally, not natural person to put myself forward. That that doesn't come easily to me. I, I think the trick that I've had when I've had to write that sort of promotion documents or to go in and, and really sell myself is to, well, when writing the documents, have a glass of wine and try and channel the most arrogant person I know <laughs> um, and and try and say, what if I was this person? How would I be portraying myself? It does concern me that the promotion processes that we have are in some ways very male focused and, and mm. not and I don't mean that by in that they suit all men, but but that they're very male in that wanting to or needing to put yourself forward and to sell yourself. Whereas I think, I mean, all research actually is collaborative. No one does everything exactly by themselves. And so we need to get to a place where that can be described more easily and where there's not the same pressure. I mean, I do sometimes think that we're leading women to play on the, the previous 
um, playing field uh, without thinking about do we actually need to change the way that we're, we're doing these, these types of things. So I think there is a, there's a, there's a difference there in, in what we're trying to do with promotion and how we're going to portray women in particular, but not exclusively. I think we do see men who, who struggle to put themselves forward as well and some women who it comes easily with. So there's a personality difference mm. there, but I think there is a, a more general idea that it's, it's difficult for women. I often talk to younger scientists and, and people going out for promotion, do, do you know, pretend interviews with them, and, and you see that a, a lot uh, mm. in just trying to, that, that ability to push yourself forward. And I don't, I don't think that you have to be able to do that to be a good scientist. No, and I think that's a, a really nice message that, you know, almost in a way science has changed a little bit because, as you say, it is now team-driven. You can't – there's no way you could do every single thing yourself. So, yeah, it's really nice to hear that there's thoughts about changing that in the promotion process. But certainly in grants and everything like that, we're, we're trained to sell ourselves. And so it does, it does make it very hard. What do you find when you've had to do that, aside from having a glass of wine and, and relaxing a little bit, um, what do you find has been the easiest way to sort of quell that, that inner critic or that imposter syndrome? Is it just a matter of I have to do this, therefore I'm not going to listen to that voice in my head for the next 10 minutes? I think, I think that is it. You have to be able to just put yourself in a space where you think you're going to perform. I mean, I always try to think back about something where things have gone well. So whether it's been a lecture I've given that's gone well or whether it's, you know, been a, a, even a sporting uh, event or something where you've done something and it's gone well and that feeling of confidence you get because of that, try and tap into that. Of course, the, the nerves are there. I always, in interviews, you know, have that first bit of spill that comes out just so that you can quell those nerves and then try and take that. Sometimes I use music to be able to uh, just be able to get yourself in the headspace, but but yeah, definitely there's a lot about acting mm. uh, and, and trying to get yourself into that, that zone before you start. Mm. Mm. And that's it. You've just got to sort of portray the confidence, even if you don't have it. Fake it until you make it, I think is the... Uh, yeah, that's the expression. Expression. <laughs> so let's just jump back a little bit to your experience going between countries. You mentioned already that, you know, it was an amazing chance to learn sort of life skills. But did you find it hard to build up networks in a new country? Yeah, I think always when you move around, it's it's difficult. And even coming back to Australia, the networks that you did have have, have in some ways disappeared. So there is a, a real conscious effort that needs to happen to stay in touch with people. And I probably didn't do that when I was in my early postdocs. You're off doing exciting things and you forget about that stage. But it's actually something to remember, to, to keep in touch with people that you already had connections with. Although sometimes I've run into those people later on in more recent years and, and actually the relationship is still there to, hmm. to build on the friendships do tend to, to keep on. But it is it is difficult. I think it, it can be quite lonely as well because you're a long way from home mm-hmm. uh, and, and everything's different. Uh, and then what, and at the same time, that pressure to perform, particularly when you're doing postdocs, they're short. You know, you've got to get your papers out. You've got to get your research done. Uh, you've got to make connections. You want to try to impress and it's there's a lot of pressure there. Mm. And one of the things actually I learned when I was in Sweden, I was working really hard and, and working long hours. And then I looked around the lab, you know, one, one evening and realised that all the Swedes had gone home and it was all the overseas people who were there working really hard. And, 
And I, so I learned a lot more about that work, non-work balance, mm. the sort of life outside work, keeping a, keeping a balance with other things that you're doing and ended up buying a, a sailing boat and uh, spent weekends out enjoying the, the fantastic weather and um, sailing around. So I think that it's really important to have things outside work. And there's been other other times as well for me when my whole sort of self-belief and definition comes through work. And and that's not a great place to be, and and it comes crashing down at times, and and so I think just learning how to keep that keep that balance. I mean, one of the things I found when I stopped working quite so hard and went sailing instead was that you're more relaxed and you actually get the same amount of work done because you're just more efficient mm. instead of being overtired. So you can actually, I think we get trapped into the oh, I've got all this this in my giant list and I have to work all weekend, but. Actually, sometimes if you say, no, I'm just going to relax, then when you come back, you, you work in a much more efficient way and, and you can have a little bit more time off. So I'd, I'd always encourage every woman to make sure that they have things to do outside work and to spend time with their family or whatever it is that they, they get pleasure from and truly relax. Yeah, and I think it takes a lot of courage to be able to say that and say, yes, I know I've got a lot of work to do, but actually at the moment I'm prioritising time with my family, time with my partner time with my pet, anything like that, to ultimately become more efficient. I know it's something, myself included, a lot of us are still working on very much so. So I think we could go on for a, a long time, but I'm going to just tie us to our sort of fire round questions, which hopefully aren't too intimidating. Could you just tell us which woman or which women have really had the biggest influence on your life? I think one one of the women that has been influential for me is Marie Curie. And that's for two reasons. So there's some photos of her in in the Solvay Conference in 1911 and again in 1927, where she is just sitting amongst all men. And she's there holding her own. I mean, it's a person who couldn't go to university because she was a woman, couldn't hold a professorial uh, position, who actually wasn't even offered a job after she won a Nobel Prize. So she was, I guess... For me, that, that determination to stay, to be heard, to have a place at, at that conference and a place on the stage, and that's, that's such dedication and perseverance and also just how far we've come mm. uh, as women scientists in, in the – I mean, that's only just over 100 years ago and, and so in a very short period of time, we've actually come a long, long way. And it also, I was once in Paris uh, travelling around and, and went to look at her laboratory. And aside from all the, the shielding to stop the radiation, <laughs> it's still a little bit hot. Somewhat important. Yeah. Um, it, it's actually a very plain, nondescript type laboratory. And, and that's just a reminder to me that a lot of science is intellectual and approach. And, you know, the, that expensive machine that goes ping, you don't actually necessarily need of course, it's nice to have those types of things, but actually a lot of it comes down to just the phenomenal things that she could do with very basic surroundings. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good message for people out there who may be low on grant funding or you know, knowing that we're going into sort of tough economic times as, as, as a world, that you can still do amazing science. We just have to um, perhaps get a bit creative. So I guess that really ties into our next question. How do you think... Or how would you compare the sort of the gender-related obstacles women face today to, say, 20 years ago or 30 years ago? 
Do you think that everything is solved or is it more difficult now because it's uh, more subtle? I think there, I mean, definitely is more subtle. I, I would say that's the biggest change. I mean, things have changed a lot. They have really changed a lot in 20 to 30 years. So even, let's say, 15 years ago, I had a, a supervisor who actually out loud expressed the view that men should be preferentially promoted because they had families to support. Oh my gosh. Uh, and, and, and that's the sort of, sort of thing that I think people would be called out on now. You'd so, hope so. Yeah, you'd hope so. And I think they are. So I think, I think we have come a, a long way. Of course, there's still further to go. There's still gender pay gap. We still see rates of professorial women at, at lower, uh, much lower rates than men. But yeah, I think we're definitely moving in the right de- direction. I think there's a, a cause for optimism that we're, we are making some progress. Yeah, I really like that. And I think that's a really important feeling that we should sort of leave this episode with, that we have come a long way and we continue to progress. And it's, yeah, I think the future for women in science is looking very bright. So maybe on that note, can you tell us the best piece of advice that you've ever received or or what you would tell the next generation of female scientists? I think from my experiences, it would be be brave and step through that door when it opens. So take the opportunities that are there. You can you can step through the door and if you don't like it, you can come back out again. But I think that level of braveness to just say, yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to give this a try and, and take those opportunities. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed talking to you and that message of bravery and strength, I think, will resonate with all of our listeners. That's great. Thank you. Well, that's all for this episode of Women in Science. In our next episode, we'll catch up with Professor of Food Science, Melissa Fitzgerald. This podcast was produced by Dr. Marlouz Decker, Dr. Marina Fortes, Belinda McDougall, and Matt Taylor. Technical production was by Daniel Seed. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure you subscribe or like wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short, and thanks for listening.